don't know how it happened really, but we were enrolled in an email thread for our neighborhood. Um, it's, there's an app, a Nextdoor app. Are you familiar with the Nextdoor app? Well, we got put on it, I think, by our homeowners association. Quite frankly, it's become the most entertaining part of mine and Julie's day. Um, it, uh, it's a little bit like, if I were to describe it, if you're not familiar with it, it's a little like an online version of the Jerry Springer show. I mean, there's all kinds of weird things being said. I mean, it can range from people in Johnson County saying they've seen a wolf, um, just to let you city folk know, unless you've been at the zoo, you have never seen a wolf in Kansas City, but uh, they are reported routinely in our uh, subdivision. And uh, there's a lot of complaining about trash pickup. That happens a lot. And honestly, you just come home, you get your popcorn, you just, <laughs> you just read it. It's very, very, very entertaining. But recently, it's gotten, there's no other way to say it, it's gotten mean. I mean, people calling out their neighbors for the most minor of issues. I mean, really, seriously, mean-spirited stuff. But about a month ago, a man in our subdivision decided he had had it, and he posted a note that I thought was really, really well done. He talked about how mean-spirited things had become in that little forum, even sharing how he had been the target of some of that mean-spiritedness being called out by his neighbors um, for really minor issues without them having come to him. I want you to, I want you to listen to part of the post that, that uh, he provided. He says, as I am sure the vast majority of you agree, listen to this, I want to live in a neighborhood where neighbors are neighborly and where everyone feels comfortable addressing questions or concerns face-to-face -face, rather than posting negatively online. There is never an excuse for hiding behind a computer screen and posting something negative about a neighbor. I thought that was really well done. I'm currently reading a book by Ed Stetzer called Christians in the Age of Outrage, where he observes that our world is awash in hostility and division and anger, and all too often Christians are adding to all of that rather than bringing peace to it. If we encounter something with which we disagree or, honestly, more often, something we simply don't like, we've lost the ability, it seems, to ask ourselves if it's really that big a deal. Instead, everything has become a huge, huge deal, everything we encounter. Let's say, for instance, your church decides to change the format of the bulletin uh, for the first time in <laughs> 10 years or so. I don't know of any church like that. Maybe you do. There are some who, who like it. Hey, it fits in my Bible. There are some who don't care for it. And then there are some who don't care for it and have reasoned conversations with us, very pleasant conversations about some suggestions that we hadn't thought of. And then there are those who say, that's it. Christianity will flounder. We will never be able to profess faith in Jesus Christ again. I'm going to have to go to another church, to which I would say, you know, they don't have our bulletin there either. Um, <laughs> nobody said that. Other stuff, I plead the fifth. But the bottom line is this. We've become addicted to outrage. So in a series of messages that is challenging us 
how to be faithful, we need to think about what faithfulness looks like in an outrageous time. And our passage today will help us to do just that. But let me give you a little background, uh, kind of think back briefly to last week. Verses 14 through 19 of 2 Timothy chapter 2 sees Paul challenging Timothy as a pastor of a local church to step up to a challenge he is facing in his congregation, that challenge being uh, false teachers who have infiltrated the church and really are beginning to teach some very dangerous stuff. And Paul tells Timothy in those verses that he is to challenge these false teachers and their teaching by being faithful to God's Word, both in his proclamation and in his living, and he's not to back down one micron. But having said that, Paul now gives Timothy what can only be described as some relationship coaching to manage the relationships that will be involved as he takes a stand in his church. And it's that instruction where we find ourselves today. So if you would please look at verse 20. Paul says, now in a great house, and he's, he's speaking of the church by way of metaphor here, in a great house, there are not only vessels, people, gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. All of that is a continuation of, of Paul's instruction to Timothy to handle the false teaching that has crept into the church. Having awakened Timothy to the damage that false teachers are, are doing. And, and in fact, let's go back and look at verse 19 as he kind of feeds this. Verse 19, it says, But God's firm foundation, as he's talking about the importance of standing for faith, God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. And again, in the context of the church, the Lord knows who are His. So in any congregation, the Lord knows those who are legitimately His and those who only profess to be His. And then He says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. When we, when we pair verse 19 with verses 20 and 21, it's clear that Paul is telling Timothy that in any church, there are going to be people who aren't really of the faith. That's verse 19. And those who are, but whose expression of faith and commitment to that faith is floundering. That's verses 20 and 21. So in short, what he's saying in these three verses is that in any church... There are going to be those who are wrong in spirit and in truth. In other words, any church will give you plenty of reason at some point in its existence to be outraged. So, how is Timothy supposed to, to manage this relational mess that the Bible calls a church? Look at verse 22. Instructing Timothy, he says, flee from youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, the natural tendency when reading verse 22 is to interpret youthful passions in, in terms of sexual morality, that Paul is saying to Timothy that you need to remain sexually pure. Well, if he's doing that here, it just comes out of left field. He, he's not... He's not talking about personal morality here. comes out of left field. Now, Paul has talked to Timothy about this 
Uh, in this first letter that we have record of, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, talks about Timothy fleeing useful lust. But that's not what he is talking about here. Here, he is uh, asking Timothy to, in light of the subject matter, deal with false teachers and the mess that they are causing with a special kind of attitude. He is to flee youthful passions, which is here a reference to youthful immaturity, getting hot-headed when dealing with these matters. He's saying to Timothy, rather than give in to outrage, you are to pursue in trying to bring these people back to the true faith. You are to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And you're to do this in such a way that others who are pursuing that same thing under your leadership can go with you in the name of the Lord with a pure heart to bring people back to where they need to be. So fleeing these youthful passions is about getting away from being hot-headed when you're confronted even with a legitimate issue. It's interesting to read these words at the end of Paul's life and, and think back to one of the earliest books that we have record of from him. It's not, it's not placed like this in Scripture, but, but there's kind of a debate whether 1 Thessalonians or the book of Galatians was the first letter penned by Paul. So both of them very early. And if you're familiar with the book of Galatians, we studied it a few years ago. Um, Paul's got a head of steam in there. He's a younger man. And he gets so irritated and gets so fed up with false teachers that at one point he writes this. This is, this is shocking, but this is Scripture. He says, if you're one of these teachers who are reproducing this false teaching in the church, I wish you would emasculate yourself. That is tweetable. That, that is postable. Those are the kinds of things where, where you can just mic drop it and walk away to the cheering adulation of people. And then you get here to the end of his life, he says, flee that hot-headedness, Timothy. Instead, when you encounter people who need to be brought back to an understanding of the faith, do it. Do it, he says, in righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those in the church who are committed to do the same thing. And if you question whether this is really what Paul means, if he's really talking about how Timothy is to engage these people with whom he disagrees, verses 23 through 26 erase all doubt. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after having been captured by him to do his will. He's saying to Timothy here, avoid giving in to outrage. Steer out of being hot-headed, overly emotional when you are dealing with these kinds of things. And he gives three reasons for that. First, giving in to outrage, meeting outrage with outrage, meeting heat with heat just breeds more quarrels. Never once has anything been settled because two people continued to out-yell one another. This is what he's saying here. It just breeds more quarrels. Second, such outrage giving in to it, even for something that is vital doctrinally, which is what Paul is dealing with here, is unbecoming of someone who claims the name of Christ. Getting down, to use last week's imagery, with the pig and wrestling with him in the mud is unbecoming of, of a gospel minister. 
And it's unbecoming of Christians who bear the name of Christ. And third, he says, standing firm while avoiding outrage leaves open the chance that those who are teaching falsely or, or even the false teachers themselves and those who are believing those false teachers might repent and be restored. Because if you stand for truth but don't care about preserving those who may have wandered from it, you can win the doctrinal battle. But you will lose the relationship that matters. Now to be clear here, Paul is not telling Timothy to simply ignore problems and hope that they'll work themselves out. He's telling him to stand for God's truth in a firm but loving and reasoned way. And I think it is this approach that has gone missing in this age of outrage. Thanks to Twitter and thanks to Facebook and the ability to post comments anonymously online, we have lost any concern for dealing with one another in loving ways when we find ourselves disagreeing even on important matters. At the beginning of the summer, two high-profile Christians engaged in a silly back and forth on an important doctrinal subject on Twitter. That's a little like saying that I want to learn deep theology by reading a comic book. Twitter is not the forum for any deep theological debate. It's a forum for mic drops. That's all it is. But they, they started going at one another, and it ended with one more or less calling the other a heretic, and the other calling their social media adversary just short of an abuser of spouse and children. Now again, the doctrinal issue was an important one, one that I actually have some strongly held opinions concerning, but the outrage was more than silly. It was unbecoming of Christians, and it shamed Christ. So, I think there's some things that we can learn by looking at these verses. I think we can see some principles for faithfully dealing with one another on important matters without giving in to the outrage that seems to be the spirit of the age. And so let me share those things with you. Two of them, this is where you get to fill in blanks for those who are neurotic, all right? Number one, remember your family. Remember your family. If you're going to be faithful in an age of outrage, it will start with the reminder to remember your family. And by that, I, of course, mean your spiritual family. Paul is never going to be accused of being soft on doctrinal compromise, and that's what makes his words in verses 20 and 21 so startling. He is reminding Timothy in those verses that there are at least some in the, the church that he shepherded, who in spite of their doctrinal drift, were going to spend eternity in heaven with him. He is telling Timothy that in spite of the fact that some were dabbling with ideas and beliefs that were to the contrary, they are still in the family of God. That's the only conclusion that you can reach looking at verses 20 and 21. In some families, he says, there are those who are being honorable in the living out of their faith by holding true to sound doctrine and behavior that flows from it, and others are not. But they can be restored to honorable use in the house of God if they repent of their faulty belief and the behavior that flows from it. And nine times out of ten, 
When we get sideways with other Christians, it's because we have forgotten that that person who has an opinion that we are hostile to and maybe even standing for the truth in in our own lives is someone that we will spend a trillion years with at the feet of Jesus. Just this past week, a man who knows better said something he shouldn't have. He's a highly respected Christian, and he was asked a personal question in a forum about another follower of Jesus. And rather than deflect the question, which should have never been asked in that setting, and say, I'm not going to talk about people, he instead took it as an opportunity to say something mean, dismissive, and mic-dropping. And everybody steered. It stood and cheered. Oh, that's so, so wonderful. But what he did was wipe his feet on a, on a sister in Christ. That's what he did. He lost sight of the fact that he's going to spend eternity. Now, there's going to come times in church life where we need to challenge one another as to our beliefs and our behavior. But when we do, we mustn't ever lose sight of the fact that we're an eternal family. And when we succumb to outrage in our very important need to challenge false belief or ungodly behavior, we've by default lost sight of that. And when we lose sight of our common bond in Christ, we not only shame Christ, we corrupt the gospel. We make it harder for it to be seen. In his high priestly prayer, in John chapter 17, Jesus says, I pray God that they all may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and here's why, that they also may be in us so that the world will know you've sent me. When believers in Christ are treating one another about family, even when like family, even when they disagree with one another, it points ultimately to that which binds us, which is Christ Jesus himself. So when we give in to outrage, we shame Christ as much as we do as when we live ungodly moral lives. So, as a check in your spirit to avoid outrage, remember that those with whom you disagree with on matters that are vital, are vital but, but frankly more often than not are trivial and don't matter, may be a part of your spiritual family with whom you'll spend eternity and chill. And then next, remember your responsibility. And what is your responsibility? Your responsibility is to work with someone who is straying from God-honoring belief and practice to bring them to repentance. When, when you give in to immature, hot-headedness, you are more concerned with self than the person with whom you disagree. In fact, when given to outrage, you are actually not concerned about holiness at all, even though it may feel. And actually, that thing that you feel is your own self-importance. In actuality, you're more concerned about winning an argument or proving your own righteousness to be superior to everyone else's. And that's not where we need to be as followers of Jesus. We instead need to be concerned about restoration. There's actually a process in church life that is designed to do just that. It's called church discipline. 
It's the act of removing someone from membership in the church for unrepentant sin, basically saying to that person, because of your refusal to repent of this gross and obvious sin in your life, we no longer have confidence that your profession of faith as a Christian is authentic. We've never had to do that to this point. But if we ever do get to that point with someone, it is because after repeated efforts to bring someone to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, they have finally walked away and it is a, it is a nuclear bomb that you're setting off in their life to try to wake them up. The problem with church discipline, however, is that I have noticed that there are some legalistic Pharisees in every church who are just a little too eager to fire the missiles. They're morality cops, and they are doctrinal police who simply want to punish. And these kinds of people will never be in leadership at Blue Valley Baptist Church. And if they find their way in, they will not be in leadership for very long. It's not that we want leaders who hope problems go away. It's that we want leaders who understand that being a shepherd of God's flock means that you are not eager to throw a sheep to the wolves. And instead, you're going to do everything possible to bring that person back into the flock. So in this age of outrage, to bring peace and not more outrage to situations, followers of Jesus need to remember their family in the church. We're going to spend eternity with some of these people with whom we may have a disagreement. And then we need to remember our responsibility to bring them back. All right, so now what? What are we going to do with all this? I mean, these, these are the words. What can we do to, to swim our way out of the outrage around us? Here's a few ideas. Number one, delete social media. And I am not kidding. It is not helping you become more like Jesus. I have yet to see anybody say to me that my social media has helped me become more like Jesus. What it has done, certain forums, obviously, is make you angrier and less loving. Now, I, I'm active on Instagram because, by and large, people still love one another on Instagram. And so I use Instagram to post pictures of my food and my dogs. You know, that's, that's what I use it for. But I got, I got out of Facebook a few years ago. I'm happier. I'm less angry. And I actually love you better. Because, frankly, I would follow you on Facebook and I'd say, What? And that was not good for me. So I've gotten off that. And I am on Twitter, but I'm deeply, deeply hidden. Cannot be found. I only use it for a newspaper. I don't comment on anything. I don't like anything. I don't retweet anything. Because guess what? The world doesn't need to know what I think about everything. Doesn't, doesn't need your opinion either. The, the, the problem is, is ultimately smartphone-related. Uh, when I became pastor of Blue Valley Baptist Church, there wasn't an iPhone. It had, never, it had never been experienced by flesh and blood human beings that lived here. The iPhone did not exist. And then the iPhone came out, 
and then all kinds of smartphones came out, and what you handed to the world was a printing press. And frankly, there aren't any of us that can handle the responsibility. And we say outrageous things and feed our spirit on outrageous things and launch outrageous things. And it would just be better for you to get off of it. And, and if you can't get away from it because your job requires it or, or whatever, then start, start limiting what you're letting the world know. It doesn't matter. It's trivia by and large. And, and people don't need to know what you think all the time. Right, so that'd be the first thing I'd do. Next thing I'd do is I would unsubscribe from email threads. Except next door, which obviously, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, you know the kind of email threads I'm talking about, right? The email threads that you're on because everything that is sent out conforms to your biases, and then you can forward it on to other people who conform to your biases, and therefore everything sounds right and unassailable because nobody with an alternate opinion is speaking. Those things don't help you. They are fostering outrage. Get away from them. Third thing, make a commitment to conversation. There are going to be times when there needs to be a real heart-to-heart -heart with someone about something they've said or something they've done or an attitude they hold or maybe something they've taught. And you will not make things better by sending them a text. In texting, all you do is cut to the chase without the relational nuance and the reminder, flesh and blood in front of you, I love you, and flesh and blood coming back to me, you love me. All of that's lost, and then it just gets hyper-competitive and gross and icky. Commit to flesh and blood conversations because we develop empathy when we look at someone in the eye and remember that we may spend eternity with them, and everybody we look in the eye is going to, to have an eternal destiny somewhere. Make a commitment to face-to-face -to -face conversations. And then commit to this finally. Don't say anything about anyone that you haven't already spoken to that person about. And I think that applies even to public figures. A few years ago, I found myself regularly ranting about a person. And then I thought... Well, what does Scripture tell me to do? Scripture tells me if I have something against a brother to go to him. Or if I have something against anyone, go to him. And so I can rationalize myself and say, well, I can't go to that person. They don't even know who I am. That's right. So shut up. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously. If I can't go to that person and have a face-to-face -face conversation with them, then really the most productive thing I can do is pray for them. And I still struggle with that. Because I just want to get angry. We live in it. We swim in it. You just want to get angry. Maybe you just pray for them. Those are just a handful of things that we can do. I mean, get off social media. Get away from email threads. Commit to have flesh and blood conversations. And then if you don't know them and you can't say it to them personally, then just be quiet.
Those are just a handful of things that we can do. And in doing so, Christians can bring peace, more importantly, otherworldliness to the discourse in our world that shows a Jesus who is great and a kingdom that will never end and citizens that are different. That is how we can learn to be faithful in an age of outrage. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please.